This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Bridgeway. It's great to see you. I'm glad to be back here together with you today. It's great to have you both here in person as well as those of you who are joining us at Church Online, Church at Home. I'm excited to jump into things this morning. Let me begin like this. I've often heard it said that you are either a people person or you're a task person. Have you heard that before? You either really love relationships, conversations, long times of spending conversation and coffee with people, or you like to-do lists and checking things off that list. I'm not sure if you know which one you are, but I'm a people person. Uh, Maybe that's kind of just natural thinking a pastor would be a people person, but more than ministry, I, I really just find people interesting. I enjoy getting to know and talk to people and figure out what's unique and different and how God has designed them to be. In fact, I'm the type of person that my kids will get annoyed with because especially when we're on vacation or out of town, I just feel like I've got more time on my hands and I'm the one that will usually kind of strike up a conversation with a complete stranger at a restaurant or a gas station. I don't know if you're anything like that, but over the years I've met some really interesting people. And I don't know if you've ever thought about what it is that makes someone interesting. Have you ever thought about that? What, what makes a person kind of maybe more interesting than others? I don't know. I've had some really interesting examples. In fact, uh, one time a number of years ago, I was in Huntington Beach, uh, California. It's in Southern Cal, and I was walking down the pier, and there was this guy, and he had a T-shirt, and I'm pretty sure his name was Lucky John, because that's what his shirt said. And he looked like he hadn't bathed in months. Let me just say that. But he was gathering this huge crowd of people because he kept saying, hey, do you want to see me drive a six-inch nail into my skull? For money, of course, right? And what do you think happened? Well, we all gave him our money, and we watched him do this. In fact, I have pictures that I could show you, but I won't put those on the screen because I know some of you, it's still really early, and you get a little squeamish. But I guess I'll just say that some people are interesting because they're I don't know, they're, they're freaks. They're just incredibly different people. And then there are other people that maybe they're interesting because they have this aura about them. Maybe you call it charisma. I had a boss, my very first boss out of college was an amazing boss, best boss I've ever had. In fact, his name was Steve Braley. I'm still in connection with him. Steve might be out there this morning watching this message. And he was the best boss ever. And I, I don't know what it was about him. He just had this way that when he walked into the room, he just sort of commanded everyone's attention, and I would bring him with me on sales calls, and, and the competition would literally just, just melt around him. He, he just had everyone in the palm of his hands. I think some people are interesting because, well, they're, they're, they're freaks, and others are interesting because they've got charisma, and then I've noticed over the years that some people, they're interesting because they have some sort of genuine character quality, and let's be honest, they have the quality that you lack in your life. And you see something in them and you're drawn to them is very interesting because, well, they're not like you. In fact, they seem to be always calm in the middle of crisis when you're always a nervous wreck. They're the type of person that are so generous when when you can't seem to get your wallet out of your pocket. You know, they're always able to see the best and turn the other cheek and, and you're the type of person that wants revenge. And in all those things, we come to the person of Jesus. And I could make the argument this morning that Jesus is all of that. He is, 
interesting because he's got these divine, crazy, God-given skills, and he's got this charisma and this character of goodness. But I want to tell you this morning that, that I think the reason why Jesus is such an interesting person is none of that. I actually think Jesus is an interesting person. He's the point of interest because of the questions that he asked. In fact, uh, one scholar counted, and they must have just gone through and counted all the question marks at the end of the red letters, and they found that Jesus asked an exorbitant amount of questions. In fact, 307 is what one scholar counted. And I don't know, I mean, you read through the scripture, and it seems like Jesus just had this way in which he was always flipping the script. There would be a conversation, it would be going one way, and then Jesus, just this great thinker and great communicator, he would kind of flip the conversation and it would be a question that would just stop the person in their tracks. And he did this to everybody. He asked questions of his critics. He asked questions of complete strangers. And he saved some of his most important questions, I think, for his disciples, his closest followers. See, I think sometimes people come to the topic of Christianity and they think, well, you Christians... Your faith system is just all about do's and don'ts and rules and commandments. Or maybe they think Christianity is just kind of, kind of a moral set of ideals, right? You just live a certain way because you're a Christian. And i got to tell you this morning that Christianity is, is really truly none of that. Christianity is a faith system of questions. And the way in which uh, you live your life will largely be shaped by how you answer these questions. So this morning, what I wanted to do is really kick this year off by looking at the questions that Jesus asked. Not all 307 of them, although I would love to do that. If you're not busy, I could keep going. Uh, but actually, we'll just look at three questions this morning. And I want to do this because I think as a pastor, I've heard over the years, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. And then they've got their list of questions. And I've observed that most people, their list of questions usually come from a place of pain. That they've got these questions and they've kind of built them up because of the painful experiences. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why there's so much evil and suffering. Why did that person get cancer? Maybe their questions are incredibly personal. Like, why did my mom have an addiction? Why did my dad walk out? If you think about it, it's questions that really own us, right? I mean, questions as simple as, you know, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I eat that? And we think that the answers to those questions are what matters. We think that when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. And what if it's actually just the opposite? What if it's not about the questions that we think we need to ask God? And what if it's the questions that God is already asking us in this life? And the weight and the measure of your spiritual maturity will be in how you answer these questions. Not someday, but here and now. Three questions I want to challenge you with this morning. And they're all found in the book of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to start in chapter 14. We could have started anywhere in this book. But I'm going to kind of walk through these three questions. And the first one is actually a question of faith. Let me give you a little bit of background and the situation that we're stepping into. This is the moment and a very popular story in which Jesus and his 12 disciples are kind of caught in a bit of a mess. In fact, the 12 disciples are really the ones in a mess. They are out in the middle of the sea, and they are caught in a storm. Now, you need to know that Jesus actually sent them into the storm. He got them into the boat and told them to go to the other side, and then Jesus left them. He went up onto a mountaintop to be spiritual. He went up to pray. And it's when the disciples get out into the middle of the lake, 
that they have this huge storm rise up. And their boat is being tossed to and fro, and they are deathly afraid. And that's the point in which Jesus decides to come down off the mountain and to walk out to them, literally to walk on the water towards them. As Jesus approaches them, the disciples forgot to take inventory of who's not in the boat, namely Jesus. And so they freak out, and they see this person walking towards them, and they think it's a ghost. And so they scream like a bunch of middle school girls. And as they're screaming, Jesus then assures them, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter decides that he wants to test this theory. Is this really Jesus walking to us? And so he says, Jesus, if it's really you, then tell me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus says, game on, come. And Peter steps out of the boat, and that's where we pick this story up. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 29. It says, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand. And caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Now, there's the question that I want you to consider this morning. Why did you doubt? And if you're Peter, on the surface, it seems like there's a lot you could doubt, right? I mean, it's the middle of the night. It's actually about three in the morning. He's out in the middle of this lake. There's gale force winds. The boat is being tossed to and fro. And oh, by the way, the laws of nature... (laughs) People do not walk on water. There's this thing called gravity and the viscosity of water. And it seems like Peter would have some reason to answer, I have a lot of doubts. I have a lot of doubts about this situation. But it's actually what Jesus said before that, that you need to know before you can answer this question of why you would doubt. It's that first part where he says, you of little faith. And i got to tell you, I've heard many sermons on this topic. I don't want to go as far as to say sermons that are bad, but I think sermons that theologically miss the point. Because I've often heard pastors and teachers get up in front of people and say, well, you know what the problem is with Peter is he had too little faith. Ye of little faith, Peter. And I've thought about that. Well, then how does Peter fix this situation? How does he get more? How does he manufacture more faith? Is it like ice cream? Like, you know, if one scoop is good, I'll just ask for two and I'll be all set. And if that were the case, not only how would you do that, how would you get more faith, but how do you then reconcile what Jesus says in other places where it seems like all you need is this microscopic, you know, shred of faith. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to move from here to here, literally to throw the mountain into the ocean. And so there has to be something else going on with this idea of faith. I don't know, I was thinking this week, maybe it works more like, like time. Have you ever thought about time? I mean, time is limited, it's finite, you don't have enough of it, neither do I. And once your time is used, it's gone, you can't go backwards. And maybe with time, we all know there's something about time that really matters, and it's not always the quantity of the time we have, but it's often the quality of the time. I was thinking about this over the holidays, and, and you all know my kids are grown, I've raised all my babies, and... I was thinking about how when we had littles, when we had young kids, you know, we had a quantity of time with them. We always had time with them because, well, they're dependents, right? And for about 10 years, there wasn't a moment, a day that went by where they weren't in diapers and needing our attention, where they weren't standing there with open mouths needing food, right? Like, 
they were constantly hanging on us. And now my kids are all grown up. And where we had lots of quantity of time, now they're in a different place. And they're adults and they have spouses and jobs. And some of them are property of the U.S. government. And, and now as parents, we have to kind of shift and realize that it's not about the quantity. It's, it's really about the quality of the time that we get with them. And I, I think this is what Jesus is referring to when he's talking about faith. That Peter, ye of little faith, it's you have too little in the quality department of your faith. You are beginning to sink in this water because you've taken your eyes off of me. And notice the timing. Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and arrests him. I think Jesus is saying, look right here, Peter. Why did you doubt? I mean, why did you doubt? You were walking on water. You know, history books would be written, and they will say, of water walkers, there's Jesus. And then in a distant second, there is Peter, right? And then there is nobody else on the podium. There's nobody else that's walked on water. Peter, you, you did it for even just a fraction of a second. Why did you doubt? I think Peter kind of loses his edge. Maybe that's the word we would use today. He becomes tentative and begins this path of doubt. I don't know. I've, I've heard boxers can get this way or MMA fighters, right, where they, they get to a point where they plateau in their career and, you know, they, they don't train as hard and they don't like getting hit and getting up as early in the morning to hit the roads and, and they lose their edge. They lose kind of this, they become more tentative and, and maybe it has to do with conviction. Because I think in many ways Peter stepped out of the boat and he had a, a lot of conviction, did he not? I mean, you think about it, the boat's getting tossed to and fro, but the boat is still, it's still safe, right? I mean, the boat is still a comfort for Peter. I mean, he's in the boat, and that's better than sinking to the bottom of the ocean. And, and now he's wondering, why did I ever get out of this boat? See, there was conviction that started something, and then, and then he lost it. And maybe the question for you and I this morning is just simply to ask ourselves, why would we doubt? I mean, what is there in your life right now that you're doubting God to come through on? I mean, where is it? Where is maybe this level of comfort in your life where now it's become difficult to say, you know, can I, can I trust him again? Maybe God is calling you to step out of the boat and it's comfortable and it's convenient and yet God is saying, why would you doubt me in this? It could be in an area of your, your life, your, your work, your employment. And maybe now you're at a place in your employment where, you know, you're comfortable You've got a job, and it's not the job you love, but it's a job, and you're doing the job, and it's, well, it's convenient because they're paying you. They're finally paying you what you're worth. And yet, deep down, you feel this unrest. You feel that this isn't what I'm called to do. And Jesus is asking you the same question. Do you need to get out of the boat? Why would you doubt? Maybe it's in an area of relationship. And relationships, friendships in particular, they, they go a certain way, and then usually they plateau as well. And maybe in that friendship, you know, some things have been done and some, some things have been said, and it's not the most honest and truthful that that friendship could be, but you don't want to rock the boat, right? And so you just leave things unsaid, but there's no, there's no conviction in that. Maybe it's in, a, in an area of just <clears throat> a social issue. And this issue comes up at work or in your neighborhood all the time. And you want to speak out. You want to say something that's, that's right and that aligns with your beliefs. But yet, you fear as though you'd be judged. And Jesus is asking you this morning again, why would you doubt? See, there's no conviction in just 
keeping quiet and being taken advantage of or just taking a paycheck. And I don't know where God is challenging you, but I believe he's asking us today the same question. Why would you doubt him? I mean, I don't want to be up here and make you feel all warm and fuzzy like if you step out of the boat, nothing will happen. I want to tell you a truth. If you step out of the boat, you, you might sink, right? But Jesus is right there to immediately extend a hand and to save you. But I can tell you this. If you don't step out of the boat, I can guarantee you with 100% certainty that you will never walk on water. Why would you doubt? That's the first question. The second question actually takes place right after this. In fact, Jesus goes with the disciples the rest of the way across the lake, and they get to the other side, and they're met by these, these religious people known as Pharisees. And the Pharisees are always trying to catch Jesus, sort of in the act of getting it wrong, like a minor technicality. And they've got all these rules and regulations, and, and they're trying to catch Jesus breaking one of their religious rules and regulations. The rule at this point has to do with what it means to be clean versus unclean. For them in that day, if you were unclean, you were not allowed to do this, to gather together in an assembly of believers. You had to be clean. And that meant everything, like on the outside especially. And so these Pharisees raised this question with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, how come your disciples are like four-year-olds? They don't wash their hands before they sit down and eat a meal. And Jesus is then kind of like in this position where he's got to battle these religious leaders. Well, it's not about just washing your hands. What makes you clean is what's on the inside of your life as well. But at the same time, Jesus is like a samurai. He's got to kind of like battle them, but he's also got to battle his own disciples because they're like, hey, we don't get it. Are, are we supposed to hold up these laws? Are we supposed to wash our hands or what? And they're as confused as ever before. And so Jesus just simply tells them, you know, the blind can't lead the blind. If the blind lead the blind, they'll just lead them into a pit. You know, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And Peter, again, just says, I don't get it. In fact, let's pick up in Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 15. Peter said, explain this parable to us. Here's the question. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Now, the question, the red letter with the question mark after it is, are you still so dull? You know, there's kind of this point, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Well, apparently to Jesus, there is. Because he asked them, are you still so dull? In fact, look at how he answers them. He kind of has to give this to them in a, like, a basic biology lesson, right? Like, you think it's about your hands, but don't you know that whatever enters a person goes into their mouth, into their stomach, and then, do I need to draw a picture for you, right? It goes out of your body. That's the way human biology works. I think Jesus is enjoying this teaching. Like, seriously, can you not understand this? More or less, do I have to spoon-feed you the answer to everything? You're so concerned about the cleanliness of your hands, but what about what's in your heart? What about what comes out of your mouth. That's what you need to be aware of. Are you still so dull? And I think this question isn't meant to kind of insult them. He's actually looking for something from his disciples. He's saying, can you go through this life and can you seek out more than just information? Can you actually take all the information that's coming at you and can you actually begin to form insights in the way in which I've called you to live? Otherwise, are you still so dull? If I have to spoon-feed you every answer, 
Because what Jesus is after, after is transformation in our lives. See, I think a lot of times we're sort of going through our spiritual lives and we're playing checkers. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to elevate our thinking, to play chess, to make right decisions with insight in our life. I tell you, as a pastor, I see this every day, just the need for, in my own life and in the people around me, to, to take all this information that our world throws at us and to actually form insightful thoughts about how to live as Christians. And we could pick any topic this morning. We could pick politics. We could pick the war in Ukraine. We could pick human sexuality. We could take any of these. In fact, many of you know I'm, I'm particularly interested in the topic of, of technology, and especially as we move from just a technology world to a world of artificial intelligence. And I've been wondering and thinking and kind of trying to process in my own mind, how do you, how do you pastor in this digital age that we're in right now? Because everything kind of impacts, digital technology impacts everything, and soon artificial intelligence will impact everything. In fact, I don't know if you've heard by now, have you heard of the new app, ChatGPT? Um, if you haven't, you can Google that this afternoon. ChatGPT is one of the fastest growing uh, super intelligence computers. It's a bot, essentially. And this bot is unlike anything that's ever hit the streets. In fact, uh, the implementation of this bot is amazing. In five days, over a, hundred, over a million subscribers have signed on. And the reason is, is it has this personality to it that you can not only ask it anything, but it can respond in a personal way that makes you feel like you're part of the conversation. So no matter what your question is, if you've got a question about, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, Bitcoin, hey, ChatGPT, explain Bitcoin and blockchain theory to me. It will come back and it will explain it to you in a way that you can understand. But it goes much deeper than that. In fact, it has all these implications about how it can actually do work for you. Hey, ChatGPT, write an email to my boss explaining why I can't go to work today. Hey, ChatGPT, take all the history in my social media, only take the best things I've ever accomplished, and post that on an online dating site as my profile. Can you think of just the implications around the way in which uh, universities will have to deal with this? Hey, ChatGPT, write me a 12-page essay on the Roman Empire, right? In fact, I've been kind of asking pastor friends of mine, what do you think about this? Hey, ChatGPT, Write a sermon for me on the questions that Jesus asked. And it begins to not get so funny at that point because then you realize, what type of information am I getting in this world? Whether it be information from news outlets, whether it be information you receive from your doctor or your pastor, it's going to become a point where it's going to become really hard to understand the difference. Where am I getting this from? Am I getting this from a real person or is this just coming from a bot? And I think that's the real problem. I think what will be lost theologically is this ability to have human agency, to actually be able to form insights that inform our life based on the spiritual life that we live out every day. And again, I'm not calling you dull. Don't shoot the messenger here this morning. But I am asking you to assess yourself. Where do I need to grow? Where do I need to sharpen my mind? Maybe this year for some it becomes this journey and this pathway of saying, you know, God, more than information, I want to have insight. I want to take your word and I want to interact in the world around you with insight that you would need for me. Last thought, last question is found just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 20. And I'm actually just going to read this because it's very self-evident. And I think you'll see this question. Matthew chapter 20, picking up in verse 30. 
It says, two blind men were sitting by the roadside when they heard that Jesus was going by. They shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. I think this is one of the most self-explanatory stories in the entire Bible. You got two guys sitting on the side of the road. They're blind as bats. They hear that there's this Jesus, this prophet that comes, and he has the ability to heal. And so they start calling out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd tells them, simmer down. So they crank it up another notch. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And I love how Jesus hears this cry. And he stops. He gives them his attention. And then he asks the question that he asks us as well. What do you want me to do for you? Now, I'll just say, on the surface, I mean, just go with me here. Like, what do you think, what do you want me to do for you means? I looked this up, and I studied every Greek word. And you want to know what what do you want me to do for you means? It means, what do you want me to do for you, right? Like, it's that simple and straightforward. And isn't the question sort of ironic? Like, these are two blind guys. I mean, what does Jesus ask this question for? Does he, does he think they're going to say, oh, I'm so glad you asked. We want to run, you know. We want to skydive. Jesus, take us to Disney, right? I mean, they're blind. They want to see. And yet, something about Jesus requires that we ask, that we state, that we're specific. What do you want me to do for you? I believe Jesus is just begging us to ask. And he's asking you as well this morning, what do you want me to do for you? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and to lead us. And and I think maybe for some, it's going to take some time to work through these questions. But these are the questions that you need answers to in this life. And so I just want to give you some time to ask God and to allow him to fill your heart and your mind with the questions you have. The worship team is going to join me now, and as they do, maybe this morning it's just about that. It's about figuring out where you need to ask God for direction in your life. Maybe there's an area of your life where you just feel, you feel dull or you feel like you're filled with doubt. And this is the point and the place where you can bring him all of your questions. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for these stories. I thank you that you are a God who cares about our heart and you care about our minds. And so you ask us these questions so that we will dig deep into the faith that you've planted inside of us. But you never want this faith to just be simple and unprocessed, but you, you call us to grow. And so God, I don't know what that means for each heart, each life here, but I, I know that you do. And so God, I just pray that you would do what only you can do, which is press deep into the heart and the soul of every individual here. That you would ask these questions and maybe many, many more so that we can be the type of followers that you've called us to be. Father God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.